Hi, I'm Sebastian Sequoia Grayson from the School of Computer Science and Engineering at UNSW, and you're listening to Surfing the Data Wave. Victor Dominello, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Very well, thanks for having me. Well, I, I wanted to just uh, get going straight off the bat here. I mean, you have done so much for technological innovation in, in, in New South Wales, and your passion for all of it is just so obviously genuine. Um, how did this start? When did you first get, get into tech? Um, was it just perfect timing in the 80s when all of these films like War Games and Tron and so on just exploded on, on, onto the, 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 the cinemas? Or was it something you know, less profane and, and, and more sacred? Oh, probably a combination of both. I, I've always enjoyed tech. I'm like, yeah, like most kids, yeah, you, you look at new gadgets and things, and you know, it becomes a marvel. Um, so yeah, I've always enjoyed the tech space. Um, when I was a lawyer, I, I I got into my data by using Excel spreadsheets and uh, realizing that you know if you use data to your advantage, you can actually win a lot of court cases. Surprise, surprise. Um, so, yeah, I was probably an early adopter there. And then when I got into politics, I realised um, pretty early on uh, in my ministerial career that there was a uh, there was a a significant deficiency when it comes to uh, real time information around decision making. So that spawned me to to really double down on this digital data journey. With regard to technology in, in, in the legal space, there's, there are so many fantastic opportunities for, for positive Im implementations, but there's, there's one that's been giving me sort of the creeps, and I'd like to know what you think about it. And it's, it's not to do with accuracy, because a lot of the concerns uh, these days about, say, a AI and predictions of recidivism and reoffense rates and these sorts of things are... are, are inaccurate and that you know there are too many false positives and too many false negatives and once we solve the the accuracy issue then then we, we, we'll we'll be good to go but i'm i'm not an, entirely sure because here here's this following this is a vaguely dystopian uh, scenario so suppose I'm, I'm a magistrate presiding on some case and i say uh mr mr dominello i'm terribly sorry but i'm going to send you to to prison and you ask me why and I say, well, because you're, the chances of you reoffending are are, are, are are very high. And you, then you ask me, well, why do you say that, Your Honour? And I say, oh, well, because my my recidivism prediction software over here, which can crunch much more data than any human can and is much more accurate than any human will ever be, has said you'll you'll reoffend. And then you ask me, well, why did the software say this, Your Honour? And then I say, well, I have no idea. It's black box, and it's proprietary you know, no, no, nobody knows how it works you know, then there's so, so much of decision making in government and in and in the legal profession has has the consent of of the people uh because someone is answerable and 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 my my niggle here is that in the race to accuracy we might outrun answerability what do you think we should do oh well ultimately somebody needs to be accountable like that's we already have systems like that in the law already like if you're on probation 
you go to probation review board and what they do is make an assessment. You know, what is your likelihood to reoffend? That's part of the matrix of whether you get probation or not. You know, they look at your antecedents. Did you behave well in hospital? They look at the psychiatric reports. Are you likely to reoffend? So these likelihood scenarios are already played out in the law. Um, but the question you raise is, well, the magistrate says, I don't know, it's a black box. That answer will never be good enough. Because if somebody gets it wrong, then you can't put the black box in jail for, or you can't sue the black box. Somebody, some You can't person, even get angry at it. <laughs> well, you can, but you, it's futile. Uh, so ultimately somebody needs to be held account for decisions. A, a warm, uh, blooded mammal, uh, ideally a human, uh, needs to be accountable for decisions that they that impact on others. So that black box scenario just wouldn't cut it in our in our day and age. In in the in the world of tech bros, uh, the the response is very different. Uh, 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 the the response is usually to, to me has just been, well, you don't need to worry about it because you know it won't get it wrong, and it's just this concentration. No, no, on you, accuracy. no, 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 no. That, oh, I don't buy that for a second. Um, mm. If it does get it wrong, then how do you how do you ascertain? Like again, transparency when it comes to AI is just non-negotiable. It's like driving a car. You've got you've just you make it part of the law. You've got to wear a seatbelt. I was wondering. We just had South by Southwest in Sydney, and I, I know that you were there for, for, for many of the events. Uh, how how was South by Southwest in Sydney? I didn't get the chance to go. What, was, what were your favourite moments? It was, uh, look, to be honest, it was better than I thought in the sense that year one's always really, really difficult. Like it's it's a major production, first time outside of uh, Texas. So um, I thought, well, the, the organisers have a huge mountain to climb. But to their to their credit, they they did an amazing job. Like the crowds were every day. That, that was full, lots of great content. Uh, look, I, if that's year one. Um, wow, year two, three, four, five, it's just going to get better and better. Sydney's got so much to offer, but think about it. From a tech perspective, um, we don't just have, um, you know, enormous digital maturity. Um, we have tech startup hub. We've got the scale-up hub. We've got tech central. Like, it really is uh, the epicenter for uh, the Southern Hemisphere. And we have fantastic tech students too. If I if Correct. I might cha champion our, our, our tirelessly working kids um, who are helping each other up past midnight in this very building where I'm sitting, nearly nearly every night as they head towards their final exams, um, one of the very biggest technological challenges faced by the New South Wales government when when you were there uh, was the response to the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, that the the likes of which we'd neither seen before nor particularly anticipated. It was just one of the biggest events, certainly in, in, in my lifetime and many people's lifetime. I was wondering if you could just um, tell us all a little bit about what your roles were at the time, especially with regard to technology. It was interesting about like, no, no one saw it coming to be honest. Uh, yeah, we, saw, we went, well, Southeast Asia went through Mars and SIRS 
But I don't think any anybody on the planet envisaged a, a global pandemic of this nature in our lifetimes. Uh, I recall uh, when the you know, the waters were coming, as it were, um, you know, we were given the the manual. You know, you dust off this manual that Department of Premier Cabinet prepare, and it was, I think it was about circa 10, 15, 20 years old. And sure enough, in the manual it said, all right, in case of a, a pandemic break glass, this is what you do. Uh, the first thing you do is you uh, you establish a, an emergency cri you know, crisis cabinet, emergency cabinet. And in that cabinet, you must have the premier, you must have the deputy premier, you must have the treasurer, you must have health. All those will make sense. Attorney generals, uh, education, transport, all these huge agencies, basically half a cabinet, to be honest. One of the things that we worked out pretty quickly is if you have half a cabinet, you cannot make quick decisions. Uh, because if you've got 20 people in a room, uh, that's not agile. You'd need to bring experts in as required, but establish a core team uh, for the day-to-day -day running of it. So glad to her eternal leadership uh, and credit. She basically said, all right, I'll have the four. And then I said to her, glad, um, you please include us in the response. Uh, and she said, why? And I said, well, look, at the core of the response, sure, it's, it's a health response, but at the core, it's it's a data. It's got to be a data and a customer play. You know, we've got to you know wrap around services and delivery around the individual, and our agency is set up for that. Like, we can reach out to transport for expertise. We can reach out for attorney generals as we need, et cetera, et cetera, education as we need. But in every decision, it's you know data has to be primal in our decision making. So. To her credit, she she allowed that to happen. So uh, my first job was to uh, get all the data scientists together across every agency, uh, and we met every morning because, again, this had not been done before, and agencies traditionally do not share data. Uh, but subject to privacy and security, we said we have to do this. We have to get some modelling up. We just can't rely on the modelling of information coming from health. We need to combine that with information coming from transport, information coming from education, blah, blah, blah. Because back then, uh, virus transmission uh, had a correlation to movement. So the more people moved, the more the virus moved. Uh, so, you know, we didn't, we had to create models of movement, essentially, uh, which required how many people were getting onto trains, how many people were driving their cars, how many people were going to the service centres? How many kids were going to school? Like, it was a really big data project. So uh, that was my role to coordinate the data response, uh, drive insights with health and everybody else, and then deliver digital products uh, that would get us through it in a seamless way, such as QR check-ins, border passes, vaccine passports, uh, economic stimulus vouchers like Dime Discover, et cetera, et cetera. And to do that fast, like we didn't, governments normally take six, 12, 18 months to build these products. Uh, we had to turn them around. In, in one instance, we had to turn around the border pass. Gladys called me on the, on the Monday morning, we had to get the border passes up and running, uh, which we did uh, by Tuesday night. So, you know, 36 hours. They weren't, they weren't silky smooth. Uh, but we kept iterating 
day after day after day, they got really good after the week. But at least by Tuesday, they were workable. We had something that you know, people could use. Um, but yeah, governments never moved at that pace ever. Especially in, in hindsight, when we look around the world and how different governments in different countries responded, and we got so many things right here in ways that were just not done in nearly anywhere else on, on the planet, which is really saying something. You know, I'm just wondering, with, with regard to all of this and data sharing uh, per se, was there, was there any help internationally with the tech or did you just have to build it from scratch? No, we, like, we, we, were, we were already on a high growth rate in relation to our digital maturity. So in 2017, I became Minister Responsible for Service. We had a garden variety app. We only had about 40,000 people on it. Um, but one of our election commitments was to do a digital driver's license, which was the, which at the time would have been one of the first in the world. It's not like we had a hundred others to look at. We were literally doing something that not many other jurisdictions had ever done. And mm. it's a high wire act. Like if you get a digital driver's license wrong, it's a de facto ID. So it's in terms of public policy and delivery, it is really a high wire act. So we had to get it right, um, and particularly because we didn't have much to to look well, you know, look to in terms of lessons. Um, so we started that journey and we designed big, built, small. So we were going to do the driver's license first, and then then we we're going to put the boat licenses in, and then we we're going to put the vocational licenses in, like forklifts, et cetera, et cetera, and then eventually birth certificates. So we had a roadmap, but driver's license was the the, the thing. We built that in house, and that took us a while to build up the capacity, but we did it. Um, and then we rolled out the driver's license in 2019, end of 2019, and literally uh, within about four months, the pandemic hit. So instead of pivoting, sorry, instead of staying the course and then saying, all right, now we're going to roll out the voting license, uh, that same team that built up that muscle quickly pivoted to all these other things. But because we had the architecture in place and more importantly, we had the people in place. Uh, yeah, we built up real match fitness fast. So we went from fast to hyper in our delivery. Yeah, I, I can only, only imagine. Um, and now that, now that that really was just such a, a huge success and the, the, the difference between the old fashioned RTA and for our younger you listeners, this is the roads and traffic authority. You would have not, not yep. heard of them or experienced them. And something like you, your initiative, like Service New South Wales, is is just they're in, nearly incomparable uh, in in, in oh, experience. A universe apart. Yeah. yeah, in ways that you know, I know that my students will never believe me when I tell no. them about just what things were like only fifteen years ago. Uh, even just you know, what it was like trying to meet one of your friends before mobile phones existed. And it was this elaborate campaign of weeks in the making uh, to all arrive at the same sort of space time coordinates somewhere in the city. And you know, something could go wrong and you'd wait for hours. You had no idea. And so more and more of our life is, is, is being digitized, is being optimized and made just so much more convenient at, at, at warp speed. And, but this, these advantages, they do bring with them all, all, all sorts of risks, as the recent sort of Medibank data breach has demonstrated to so, so many of us. And I know that you've had your, your finger on the pulse with this for some time now. 
So I'm wondering um, if, if you'd like to just explain to the listeners what the double helix digital ID is. So uh, most countries uh, that have a digital ID have a centralized uh, system, i.e. like in central European countries, they've got, as soon as you're born, you're given a number. Uh, the number's attached to your forehead and, and, and that carries you through life. And that's it, you know. But these centralized European nations, uh, they've gone through World War One, World War Two. you know, their cultural historical context is very, very different to Australia where, you know, thankfully we no one's really uh, came onto our shores you know, in, in, in war. So what we've done is we've sort of avoided that centralised European ID system. And so is America, so is the Washminster, Westminster systems. The UK, oh, about a decade ago, tried to do a decentralised ID, but it didn't work. Uh, but what we're trying to do now is pretty much something similar. There are essentially two times that the government can ask you to come in and we're, we're required to take a lawful photo of you, apart from when you're going to jail. Uh, one is a passport and two is a driver's license or a photo card. Apart from that, they don't need a photo of you. You know, you get your Medicare card, they don't need a photo. You get, uh, you know, you get a birth certificate. Don't need a photo. But a passport and a driver's license are the only times there's a photo. They are, in many ways, the side rails of the double helix, in the sense that they're your identity pillars. Um, a passport is not an identity document per se. It's a credential. It's a simply a, a an ability to move between ports. A driver's license is a credential. It's a, an ability to drive on the road. We've now framed up these two credentials as de facto identity documents, and you know, each adding up to you know, 40 points, 40 points, 100 points, etc. But they are not fit for purpose in the digital age. In a digital age, you should have an identity document that truly protects your personal information uh, whereas your passport's got so much other personal information when you share it, why do people need your date of birth? Why do people need your, your address in your driver's license? Why do people need to know whether you wear glasses or not? Or, you know, uh, you know, when you're sharing a bounce of your date of birth, do they really need to know that you're a Leo? Are they going to give you an astrology read? They just need to know you're above the age of 18 and that's it. But because we've uh, essentially manufactured poorly identity frameworks around these 20th century documents, we're in a bad place. So what we need to do is create that double helix with the side rails being the identity credentials. Uh, and then the rungs in between are your actual credentials. So the side rails are the who, who you are. We know that you're Sebastian. The credentials are what you can do. I can drive my car, that's a driver's license. I can move between nations, that's a passport. I can work with children, that's another credential. I can operate a forklift license, uh, license uh, forklift. that's another credential, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the double helix. The feds have got theirs, um, and that's essentially my gov and a few other identity plays. 
but the it's like a clunky network because it means you've got to go in and out of MyGov to access all your, your credentials over here, which is a very poor experience. In New South Wales, what we've done, and this is world leading uh, in a digital identity we're about to roll out, we've actually dovetailed all the credentials into the into the side rail, so it's a seamless experience. So you show your service app, and then bingo, uh, green tick, go into the nightclub. It it just extracts the only the the only information that's required for you to do the relevant activity and nothing more. And then in the in the perfect world, you say, all right, you should not be storing any information I give you anyway. Uh, you can you can have a record uh, that we can validate downstream, but there is no tracking. There's none of that information that currently exists. Data can't be stolen from somewhere if it's not stored there. Correct. And the the the, the behaviour of storing everything, I think, it was it's just a holdover from that sort of twentieth century technology where we photocopied everything, and we put everything in a file, and we put it in the side and. I was laughing a little darkly at your um, reference to the the European model of the single ID number. I lived in Europe for a decade. Yes. Uh, one of the reasons that my residency permit in um, both Belgium and the Netherlands took as long as it did is that no one in the history of either nation had ever had my name. And what that meant, because of the way that they do things, they had to generate an entirely unique number with a different with different substrings in it. Of course, this being, you know, this took an extra four months at both ends and, the, and these sorts of things. And you've got police officers coming around to your house with the photographs on you, knocking on your door to make sure you live there and everything. And this is just how the the, the civil service works. So I'm glad to hear that we're not in any huge rust, rush to uh, to to simulate uh, this this sort of system because it, everything just grinds to a halt. It's, it's no, uh, Australia, the one that uh, Katie, Minister Katie Gallagher is, is driving is a decentralised ID. And it's, what I mean by decentralised, it means that, um, for example, um, your passport uh, is one form, your birth certificate is another form, uh, your driver's licence is another form, uh, your Medicare card. There's four points of ID, right? But each one of those points are, live in different agencies, state and federal. Medicare is with health, federal health. Passports is with um, home affairs, federal. Uh, driver's license with state transport. Birth certificates with state birth designations. It's decentralised in the sense that there is no one agency that owns your identity. It's, it's decentralised, fragmented. So if there's an attack on your driver's licence, uh, well, then that's not going to bring the system down. They would have to attack you and all four agencies and pretty much the six million people. So that's so there's no honeypot created in that sense. Good. Information is an asset and diversifying one's assets has always made yeah. sense for, for, for the informational versions of, of a house fire. You know, it's a perfectly sensible yeah. way to go. I know that you were... You, you're assistant minister for, for education, and and given that the mm. the transport of information almost ipso facto allows for the transport of disinformation, although I know some people are, are working on all of this with watermarks and so on, what updates 
for want of a better word, do you think are needed for just people's mindsets to navigate this, this very quickly transforming informational landscapes? I mean, for any sort of environment with a lot of advantages and, and, and a lot of dangers, like just say swimming in the water, something we do in Australia all the time. Every kid in Australia learns to swim. It's not, it's not optional. You have to jump in the water with your clothes on and pick the rock up from the bottom of the pool and you get the badges and these sorts of things. Because we're surrounded by water, it's a lot of fun, but it's not without its risks, so we learn how to do it. And is, is something like this, like almost like informational safety, do you think worth weaving into the tapestry of just the way that we that we we raise and educate persons within our our education systems in Australia? Yeah, I, I think it's critical. Like um, digital literacy, financial literacy, uh, these are uh, critical skill sets, not just at school but for life. So, for example, I'm reasonably okay with tech because you know, I'm passionate about it. I, I, I keep, you know, keep reading, listening, watching in terms of what's around the corner. Uh, but there might come a point in time where all I want to do is sit on the beach uh, and the world just passes me by for five years. And then I come back and say, what, how do you do this? How do you do that? Like I, I will constantly, look, we're pupils at school, we're students for life. And if we're students for life, we need to constantly have that learning mindset. A, it's healthy for the brain, but B, uh, with the way that tech's moving, it, it just moves at such a pace. We need to constantly check ourselves to, to make sure that we're on top. Uh, we don't have to be the best, but we need to have a operational understanding of you know what's happening in our world. And I think that digital literacy, so for example, one of the ideas uh, I had, I, I, discussed this about a year ago, but I didn't, I ran out of runway to do it, was to basically um, create a, a simple uh, questionnaire on your service app, you know, 85% of the adult population have it. And the questionnaire might ask you five questions like, do you do uh, internet banking? Do you, uh, you know, do you have a mobile phone or whatever it is? Um, and then based on those questions, do you know what the metaverse is? Do you know this? Do you know that? You know, five or six simple questions. And then based on that, it'll, it'll come back to you and say, you know, your digital literacy is, you know, six out of 10, hypothetically. And therefore, it's okay. You're, you know, if you want, but if it's three out of 10, here's some additional courses for free that you can go to at some community schools to brush up to help you out in the digital age. So. You know, doing those regular tests, you know, once or twice, once a year, once for two years, I think would add to our muscle as a society, and you know, keep us uh, keep us fit for purpose in the age that we're in. Look, I'd love to, I'd love to end on um, a, a really positive note. You know more about uh, technology than and and its in its limitations and its opportunities than than most people, especially at the pointy end of actually implementing it, about what is it that you're most optimistic for society and technology and the interface between the two for you know, New South Wales in particular and Australia in general over the next five to 10 years? Well, when I was a kid, I went to, uh, I went to a Catholic school. Uh, I'd get on my knees and pray for miracles. Like if, if a loved one uh, was going through, you know, 
pain, medical condition, whatever, I pray for them to get better. Um, what tech will do or can do is provide modern miracles at scale, at pace. Um, it will enable the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk. Uh, that is the North Star. It's about using tech, not for tech's sake, but to reduce suffering and improve quality of life. Now, we've got to put guardrails around it because there's a lot of downsides to it if we get it wrong. Uh, but if we keep that as our true North Star, then you know we, we can uh, move into a, a better world than the one we've got. Well said, and thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Sebastian.